everybody. And welcome to That's Life, the show where we are back from Pesach with Legendary Destinations. We are tan, and we are conservatively 15 pounds heavier. Good morning, folks, and thanks for listening. I am Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, general manager here at the Nahum Siegel Network, and a very, very, very tired general manager at that. You can find me here every Thursday at 10 a.m. right after Charlie and right before Nahum's live lunch, as I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. And as ZK can attest to speaking to me late last night, there has certainly been some wackiness at the Wallachs in the last 36 or so hours. Presently, I am coming to you from the home of the Nahum Siegel Network on the beautiful Lower East Side, joined by ZK. Hello, ZK. Welcome back from sunny Florida. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. I'll tell I'm, you I'm sure you had much better weather than we had over here. I mean, I was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I mean, uh, it, for the most part, it was okay, but Tuesday, the first day Yontem was really rough for us. <laughs> I didn't realize you were hanging with the Amish over here. We, we were hanging with the Amish. That's nice. We it's were hanging nice. with the Amish. That's great. Did you borrow a black hat or you had your own? You were fine. I had my own, you know. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. It worked out. Everything was good. We had everything we needed and uh, it was very nice. We enjoyed That's ourselves. Great. That's great. Yeah, we, um, as I had mentioned before, we left for Yontif and I had tweeted about the Wallach family drove down the East Coast. We drove from New York to Florida, specifically to Fort Myers, Cape Coral, where we joined the Siegel family and legendary destinations at the Westin in Cape Coral, which was as gorgeous and legendary as was promised. Um, I am completely more tan than I have ever been in my entire life. To that, to that note, my uh, cousin who lives in Yerushalayim is actually flying through New York and she is uh, between flights. So she was, she is l- literally right now at my house, just, you know, killing time before her next flight. And she has known me my entire life, and she looked at me and she goes, I have never seen you this tan. I'm like, I don't think I've ever been this tan in my entirety. But the um, that is not the excitement. The excitement was the drive down and the drive back. And as I had mentioned on JM and the AM, the drive down was great. We did it in a couple of days, spent Shabbos in Savannah, where everyone was lovely, and we were treated to incredible southern hospitality. That reputation certainly does um, meet all expectations. They were really, really wonderful there. On the way back, it was a little bit more challenging. Stephen and the kids left Matzayantif because they needed to get some hours in, some miles in before I could leave. And because Nachman and I broadcast yesterday morning, Wednesday morning, Isru Chag from Florida, I couldn't leave until the show was over. So guess what I did? I flew out of Florida into Atlanta, then took a flight from Atlanta to Raleigh, where who was waiting for me? The Wallachs. Stephen and the kids were waiting for me in Raleigh, and then we finished the drive together from Raleigh to New York at that point. So it was um, a little bit like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride in Florida, except uh, in Disney, I should say, except without the funny Mickey t-shirts afterwards. It was exhausting and um, classic karma, as the case may be. We get to New York, we cross over, uh, we are on the Verrazano, and then, you know, you know, ZK, like, like the last... Um, the last couple. The last of- leg. <laughs> exactly. You're exhausted, but you know the end is near. And Stephen keeps on saying, like, it's the end, you know, it's the bottom of the ninth. It's the bottom of the ninth. And, and we're just on autopilot at that point. The kids are all asleep. It's way, it's like one o'clock in the morning. We're exhausted. And the belt is closed. The belt is closed. 
The Verrazano leading into the belt is completely closed and Waze redirects us a little bit and we still can't get on and all of a sudden we find ourselves on the BQE going through Manhattan. Yeah. It was <laughs> it was just it was so cruel. And then of course on the BQE, two lanes are closed for construction, so everybody's down to one lane. I'm like, I cannot believe this. And my kids are, you know, my youngest is waking up in the back and everybody's getting cratchety and whatever, but I will tell you that thank God, with all that was predicted would happen on this trip, it really went smoothly. Like our biggest hiccup was was the um was the belt last night. But as I said to Steven, no one vomited. We did how many thousands of miles? There was no vomit in the car. I wish I I could say the same. Uh, Exactly, exactly. But you you know exactly what I'm talking about when you travel. Oh yes, I do. When you travel with little kids, anything can happen. And truth be told, the kids were great. And um, after the first ten or fifteen, are we there yet? They stopped asking. So um, thank God, Sof Kolsof, it was great. And kudos to my husband, who really did a tremendous amount of driving. Um, I pitched in, but I cannot take credit the way he can. He really did a great job. So we're exhausted, but we're back and we're healthy and uh, we are vomit-free. So trust me, I am not complaining. If you are a new listener to the show, thank you for taking a break from your day to tune in. If you're a returning listener, thanks as always for making us part of your day. If Miriam L. Wallach once a week is just not enough for you, do what Elisa Rudman did. Shoot me an email. Um, Miriam at NahumSiegel.com. You can also friend me on Facebook. Send me an invite on LinkedIn. I won't be, I'm not being rude. You know that I return my emails, um, after the show is over and I'm pretty crazy about returning my em- emails in general. So please do me a favor and be in touch. Also follow us on Twitter, NahumSiegelNet, all one word, and Miriam L. Wallach, also one, all one word. By the way, also shout outs to Soul Farm, to Eighth Day, to Steve Bill. My gosh, did they provide incredible entertainment over in um, and then I must say, spent, being able to spend time with Freddie Roman. Freddie Roman was amazing. Freddie Roman lives in Boynton. You're my in-laws. I mean, we had such a good time with him, speaking to him afterwards. Um, it was really, it was really a lot of fun. It was, it was pretty thrilling. I got to be honest. And what a mensch. What a lovely, lovely guy. To the national holidays, by the way. Today is take our daughters and sons to work day, but. If you're if you're from and it's Icyuntif, you know you're taking your kids to school day. This is not another family day. It's a day where we put our kids on the bus, say vaya con Dios, and wish them a wonderful day. So if you are taking your daughter and son to work today, great for you. But the rest of us, we're happy to send our kids to school. It's also World Meningitis Day. I'm not sure how to celebrate that, but I guess it's more of an awareness thing. It's also Bed Bug Awareness Week, and thank God we only two more days of that because that gives me the heebie-jeebies. It's National Karaoke Week. That's fun. Why not? It's National Princess Week. I'm not sure how to celebrate that, but I'm sure there must be some bling involved. It's also National Playground Safety Week. That's something that should be every single day, frankly. So many, so many accidents happen in the playground. And it's Safe Kids Week, which also, I guess, goes along with the previous, um, with the previous celebration. Anyway, you are listening to That's Life here on the Nahum Siegel Network. And I think my first guest is already on the line. ZK, is he there? Just give me one more moment, all right? Yeah, one no problem. <laughs> no problem. Um, so getting, oh, I didn't realize ZK, ZK, let me just tell you, ZK is the man. For those of you who were not keeping track of what was going on in Florida, were we dependent on ZK more than ever? And he was in Lancaster and we were in Florida. And not that we ever take ZK for granted, that's for sure. We never take ZK for granted. 
but he was seriously pulling his weight thousands of miles away. And as always, we thank him. We thank Rob, who was in Florida with us. He worked for the West End. He was incredible. And for a man who didn't have to be work uh, at work until like 7, 8 o'clock in the morning, he was there before we were setting up. I mean, Malcolm and I were starting to set up by 5 in the morning, and he would be waiting for us, which was pretty crazy. He was waiting for us. He wanted to make sure we were totally set, that everything was misudar, as they say. Um, by the way, if you had not heard Nahum talking about his big moment uh, during the second Seder when we were um, when we were broadcasting, it must have been Thursday morning. Yeah, of course, it was Thursday morning. Cholamoid. Nahum was talking about how at the second Seder he broke the second matzah, he broke the middle matzah in complete half, and actually held it up for all the the uh, dining room to see, and everyone started to clap. Everyone went, um, it was cheering and whatever. And also, of course, I was screaming fix, but, um, it was pretty cool. I had actually never seen that before, though Nahum had informed me that he often, uh, I shouldn't say often, but he has before been able to break the middle matzah in, um, in, in half like that, though this was really, really, really close. For us, the Afikoman is all about not coming back in shards because for some reason or another, we always have an issue where after we hide the Akikoman, it looks more like matzah meal than it does actually like matzah. Um, but we had a wonderful time. And, of course, when you're in a large dining room with all, with a number of families all having their um, their own siddharim, it's a issue of whose who's Akikoman you find and where you find it and whatever else. So people have to keep an eye on it. We actually brought down our, our kids' Akikoman bags that they had made in school, so we were able to identify our our own. But other families who were just wrapping them in the napkins from the table, it was uh it was a little bit of an issue, but it was very very cute, and everyone got along really nicely. Anyway, Rabbi Sherman is on the line. Rabbi Charles Sherman is the author of The Broken and the Whole: Discovering Joy After Heartbreak, Lessons from a Life of Faith. He is the senior rabbi of Temple Adasi Shuren, the largest synagogue in Central New York. He's extremely active in numerous faith-based and secular organizations. He has been a respected and recognized member of his community for almost 40 years. He and his wife, Leah, and their son, Eyal, live in Syracuse, New York, and he is on the line. Good morning, Rabbi Sherman. Good morning, Miriam. I don't hear Rabbi Sherman. Can you hear me? I hear you very, very low. Can you hear me okay? You bet I can. Okay, fantastic. I, I can hear you well enough, so that's good. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing great, and thank for allowing me to be a guest in your wonderful show. No, my, listen, my pleasure. And I was very excited, um, when your son Erez, who should I also refer to as Rabbi Sherman? No, no, no. He's my son. <laughs> it's alright. It's, uh, uh, it seems to be a family business for you. That's it. Listen, I'm keeping it alive for everybody. That's exactly <laughs> it. Um, I, I, I would hear that. That is, that is for sure. It is, um, it is not, there are, there are numerous instances, I would say, when a father, when a son wants to go into the profession of the dad and the dad says, listen, you know, see what I've gone through, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but I guess at some point or another, because he is not your only child who is a rabbi, you just encourage them to, to follow their hearts. Well, I, I, think, I think what they really saw is that they recognize it's not a business, and it's not a job, but it's a lifestyle. And, I, uh, and, and it, it was just something that was just very, very natural. And uh, they're doing something that they, uh, you know, they get paid for it. But they would do it for nothing. And uh, I think that really what's the rap that it is really all about. It's a lifestyle. And if you see it as a business or a job, then you don't belong in the rabbinic community. 
Rabbi Sherman, I'm having a little trouble hearing you. Give me one second. I don't think it's on your end. I'm pretty sure that it is on mine. Um, just give me one second. Um, let me see. Is that better? Can you talk again? Yeah. Can you hear me now better? Yeah, I can hear you a little bit better. Um, let me ask you. Let me let, let's talk for a second about the book. Uh, well, not for a second. For a good couple of moments about the book. Again, the broken and the whole. Discovering Joy After Heartbreak. It's put out by Scribner. It's available on BarnesandNoble.com, Amazon.com. I want you to know that as I was reading it over Pesach on the program that we went to in Florida, a number of people came over to me and said, I just bought it. I haven't started. Don't tell me what happens. <laughs> That's very, very, very kind. I appreciate it. Um, it's really a wonderful book. And, um, again, it talks about your your son, Eyal, and the journey that your family has taken over the last 30, somewhat 32, 33 years um, from from Eyal's birth to where he is now, where you are now as a family. Um, and I had so many questions for you, and I really took the time to write them down and to think them through. But one of the things I felt just initially was most point was most poignant was the fact that I was reading it over Pesach, and there are so many references to Pesach in the book. Correct. Correct. You know, uh, you know, briefly, really, what it is is that uh, you, you think that uh, those who, of us who are people of faith, there's this kind of naivete that's out there that thinks that we're insulated and we're protected from life's challenges and assaults. And it's, and it's a universal message. No one is protected. And... Uh, you know, what I, what I had to deal with when we talk about the Passover it really ex- experience is that when Eyal, he's a quadriplegic, uh, nothing really works except his, his mind. And what I, what I had to deal with is that as a rabbinic figure giving people advice, I used to say to people, well, just move on. Put the pieces of your life back together again. And when people started offering me that advice, it didn't feel right, and it, it was very, very irritating. And what I recognize is that you can't put the pieces back together again, be it illness or, or death or business reversal or family relationships are destroyed. And what you have to learn to do is learn to live with the broken pieces. And, and, and the story that I use for rabbinic literature is, is the story of what happened to the Aserat Hadid broke to the first set. Uh, they're broken by Moshe. And what happened to those broken pieces? And there's a lovely midrash that says that that the, they picked up the broken pieces and they put them into the Ark of the Covenant and they traveled to the Promised Land with both the broken pieces and the complete pieces. And the challenge is, is to learn to live with the brokenness in your life, and it goes back to that biblical story. It goes back to that, in terms of the, where the, where Ra'am Yisrael thought that their, their life was over. I mean, it, it was hopeless. What's going to happen? And and they recognize you could still celebrate joy and it celebrate your life, and you could still have a dream and a hope of a promised land. And and that story gave us a certain amount of energy and and a, and a, and a passion that life could still be enjoyed and celebrate. You know, I, I tell people that uh, 
what happens, I don't want to talk too much and dominate the conversation, but what I tell people is that most of us take ordinary moments and try and make them extraordinary. And what we've done with our son is a quadriplegic on a ventilator. We've taken the extraordinary and try and make it ordinary. Ordinary is good. Ordinary is wonderful. And when you recognize the ordinary is special, it gives a different kind of context to what you do, the daily grind of your life, that every moment is wonderful. It's what I call a Shechiano moment. Every moment of your life is. Rabbi Sherman, I'm sorry for one second. I'm 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 having some trouble again hearing you, and I'm yeah. not sure why. Just give me a second. You're listening to that live here at the Nachos Eagle Network. I am experiencing a little bit of technical difficulties, Rabbi Sherman. I do apologize. Um, can, is he can, I can hear you fine. Okay, okay. so let's, um, we'll reconnect with Rabbi Sherman in just a moment uh, while we work on something uh, technically over here. <laughs> um, so, Miriam, if you could just... Um, I'm going to cue a song. Yeah, if you could cue a song, and then we'll try to uh, get... Okay, do you, want to, do you want to try and call me back on a cell phone? Um, you can, you yeah, can actually I hang on the line, Rabbi, because uh, we have a good connection with you over here, and we'll, we'll, we're going to try to work something out in just a moment, all right? Okay, okay meanwhile, everybody, we are going to... Meanwhile, everybody, we are going to go to actually the song I wanted to close with, which was Yesh Tikva, um by the Maccabees. It is off of their One Day More CD that has just been released. It's actually a collaboration with Benny Friedman. Give us a couple minutes, everybody. Enjoy the track, and we'll be back with you in a minute.
for that selection. Let's just make sure we have Rabbi Sherman. Rabbi Sherman, are you there? Yes, I'm Oh, my here. word. It is a mir- miracle of miracles, wonder of wonders. I apologize um, for the technical issues we are having, but I hear you just perfectly right now. And um, I have right. the book in my hand, and everything is right with the world again. I thank ZK, <laughs> who is our wonderful um, engineer. Um, let me ask you something. I keep referring to you as Rabbi Sherman, and you are Rabbi Sherman, but why aren't you Rabbi Sherman on the cover? Uh, I think one of the reasons being is that, you know, uh, is that uh, we wanted the book to have more of a universal feel. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the challenges it addresses are not just specific to Jews, mm. specific really to, uh, to humanity. Right. Everybody has it. And even though, uh, as you read the book, it's certainly it's a Jewish book. Right. No question about that in terms of sources. And, and who I am and what, I, what I'm about. But uh, that was the reason, because we wanted the book really to uh, to get further out really into the, into the larger community, which it already has. It, it, you know, uh, in about a week or so, I'm going out to California and speaking really to uh, large groups in terms of the disability community, uh, church groups, and everybody has the same challenges. Mm. My daughter was actually the one who picked up on it, and it wasn't something that originally... 
um, occurred to me, but she said to me, <laughs> she made some kind of a joke, like, what rabbi doesn't want to be called rabbi? Um, well, it, what's interesting, you know, when Harold Kushner, who wrote an endorsement for the book, who wrote sure. the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, uh, if you look at his, he also does not really put his title on the book. Hmm. And maybe we live in, in a world that, uh, you know, there, there still are uh, divisions and walls that, that, that people judge in terms of by titles. And, you know, we, we, I wanted the message really to, uh, to go further and be much broader out to the community and not just the Jewish community. There are so many, um, there are so many aspects of the book that I really felt transcended um, Judaism. It wasn't um, that the messages didn't reach me because I am not a child. I'm not a parent with a child of special needs, nor was it a situation where um, it, this, the book only reached me because there were so many references to Yiddishkeit and, and the sources of your faith and, and, and references to Shabbos and the way you close the book about the Shabbos meal. But there was really, it, it, to me, it, it, it served that goal. It, it fulfilled its purpose in terms of being able to be, um, a story which reached out to anyone and everyone. And, and I, I, I wondered at one point, um, because so much of your strength comes from your faith as to whether or not somebody who is an atheist, somebody who has no belief in any God, would be able to pick this up and feel strength? That's a very, very good question in terms of, uh, of that. And, you know, I, I think there are strategies that are, that are there outside of the faith experience. And so, for example, you, you know, there's a chapter dealing with anger. How do you deal with anger? Right. You know, how do you deal with uh, with relationships, with, with marriage? How do you deal really with, with re- restoring uh, hope and optimism and dealing with, with personhood? So, you know, there's certainly more than enough material that irrespective of your faith experience or lack of faith. I think what, one of the things I tried to do also in the book was to to be as genuine as possible, is, is that, that some, some of this... Certainly, within the Jewish community, we we, we look at our um, at our rabbis and our, and our leadership, thinking that we are perfect people. Mm. We are flawed like anybody else, and and that was a real struggle for me. To, how much did I want to really share of, of my real neshama? Wow. How deep did I want it to go? And I think if the book was going to be genuine, genuine, then it, it, it had to be totally, totally honest. Uh, what my fears were, my anxieties are, that my, my doubts and uh, my angers really it, it, as well. So I think there's enough really in it that irrespective of one's faith experience that you can identify with the challenges, some of the strategies and suggestions as well. It's, um, it, it's funny because I was, I don't want to say impressed because that's not the right word. Um, and the word is not proud either because that almost sounds condescending. But I was so um heartened warmed by the fact that you had allowed your readers you were you were allowing your readers you're asking your readers to really get to know very intimate parts of your life and certain things could have been glossed over um but you um but you appreciated how important it was for people i think the way i took it was that in order for people to share your strength they needed to know you they needed to know almost all of you. And I love, of course, because who's not a romantic? I love the way you talk about your wife and how you met 
And um, there's something about people who meet in camp that I find yeah. that I find very, very sweet. Jewish camping is wonderful. Isn't it amazing? So many it's, things it's happen in camp. Better than J-Date. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I, I want to tell you, you know, one of the things was is that uh, it took me over 30 years to write this book. Certainly to write it very, very fast. One of the reasons being is, is what you just raised. Uh, I needed some distance, mm. and I needed life experience, and I needed maturity. And I think I've reached really a, a stage in my life where it's not, it doesn't make a difference what I, what I say, but I've reached a level of confidence in my life that I able to can reveal those kinds of things without being anxious or being really apprehensive or fearful of what someone would think about me or think about my relationships. Mm. And uh, I think it's a better book as a result of that. able to have that kind of experience of looking back now what I did wrong, what I did wrong, and you know, and how what we've gone through can help other people uh you know, improve the quality of their life. Some people will take it all. Some people will take parts of it. Some people will say, um, I don't accept really what the man is saying, which is fine, which is fine. But it's from really a perspective of someone who, as I use the expression, who has walked and continues to walk through the valley of the shadow. Mm. And you know what? All of us at one time or another take that walk right. through the valley of the shadow. That is true. The book is called The Broken and the Whole, Discovering Joy After Heartbreak. Rabbi Charles Sherman is on the air with us now. The book is is available on barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com. Um, and I have to imagine a book at uh, your local bookstore near you. If you cannot get a copy of it um, at your bookstore, definitely go on Barnes & Noble. I know for a fact that they deliver it in 24 hours. <laughs> that is for sure. Um, I also uh, just... Tell me how much time you have, Rabbi, because I really have a whole list of questions. <laughs> no, no, I, I, you know, I put aside a significant time to talk. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Okay, so then let's go to the cover for a second, because the cover is this picture of this dandelion. And, um, and as a person who really has studied literature for, for a long time, and there is, and this is something that Mark Zomick, who's a member of our team here, makes fun of me. And he says, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. And I, my attitude is, my attitude, no, that cigar was chosen for a reason. There's a deeper meaning to the cigar, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm looking at this dandelion, which is in its last stages. You know, a dandelion starts out as a little yellow flower and then becomes, you know, what my kids refer to as a snowball. And then you blow it and all the little pieces fall, you know, fly away. So, on the cover, for those people who are not looking at the cover, for on the cover is a, it's um it's a dandelion in the bottom left corner in its snowball stage, and some of the you know little parts of it have already begun to f- to fly away, though the majority of the snowball still remains intact. Why that image for this book? I think really it's it's a metaphor of life, and the metaphor of life is exactly like that. We go through different stages, and is that uh, you you try and retain really part really of that particular uh, uh, flower, mm. and yet again, it flies it away, and it regenerates itself, scatters really about. I think the other reason is, is in the book that uh, Eyal is so terribly challenged, but he paints. Mm. He got his Bachelor's of uh, Fine Arts from Syracuse University, right. so they paintbrush in his mouth, and he loves to paint flowers. Mm. And I tell the story that I once asked him, uh, why do you paint flowers? And he gave me a strange answer, which is related to the, uh, to the dandelion. He says, because you 
have them forever. Mm. And but you don't. Of course, if you're lucky, mean you have them maybe for a day or two, they 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 wither. And but but and I thought about it. He's right. You have them forever. And what you have really is the fragrance. And you always have this picture of the flowers. It was interesting. I did a funeral of, about a week ago of of a woman maybe in her late seventies. And, uh, you know, it was traditional Kavura. But the family asked at the end that the husband used to give his wife a rose. Shabbat. Mm. She saved all these roses. They were married for 50 years. Wow. I mean, you can imagine what this thing looked like. Wow. And what they wanted to do is that they wanted to throw the roses in with the dirt in her casket. i got to tell you, it was a, it was a very, very, very special moment. And there, even though the flowers had died years ago, there was life there. It's the same thing in terms of the cover, really, of the book. It's a dandelion that's really on its own stage, but you know that that dandelion will regenerate itself. I don't know where, you know, or how it's going to happen, but there will be life. There will be life again. And that's why it was chosen. It is beautiful, and it's true. It is a, um, Wow. It is really, it is really a wonderful, a wonderful metaphor. I, I can only imagine what all those roses look like. That image right now is, is, is stuck in my head. I know I have the first rose that was ever given to me, but I, I cannot imagine saving. Huh, a... Well, listen, you know, if you remember, you know, uh, that was prom season. We kids were proms years ago. The boy would give the girl a corsage. Right. She would take it and she would press it and put it into a scrapbook. <laughs> sure. Things like that. And it's amazing that what I discover when I uh, go over to people's homes and let's say an older person has passed away and uh, the kids will say, here mom or here's grandmom's corsage that grandpa gave her uh, 75 years ago. And uh, it, you're looking at the flower, but there's a story there, a serious, mm-hmm. serious story about love and relationships, kindness and generosity. You know, this is really why we, we, you know, it, it, it was chosen. You um something it's funny about um the art of of generosity and and giving etc. There's a there's a part in the book um and there's a chapter called Acts of Loving Kindness and you talk about the difference between just being kind and a loving kindness right. and um and I thought that that was so poignant how when somebody how people can give yes people can give and it's part of their job and etc cetera, etc cetera. but when somebody gives with love. It is a totally different act, right? And you know, and I and I tried to figure out. You know, it says Ashla Shadavarim Haolam Omeid. Right. One of them is, you know, why not just say Chasadim? Why give me Lut Chasadim? Why why the why the why the addition of give me Lut? And and I think what what and that's exactly it. There are two levels. You know, you you can command kindness, tzedakah, and things like that. But you can't, mm. and, and over the years, you see, I used to be uh, cynical, but a, a bit suspicious of people. I thought people had hidden agendas. But uh, over these years, I saw people who were incredibly selfless mm. of my faith, not my faith. Maybe had, there was a goodness there, and I lived a 
high-cleans toilets. And it was like Mrs. Kravitz, the the the, um, the school teacher, the Board of Ed school teacher, who was assigned to Al to teach him while he was um, in the hospital. And you talk about how if she could have been a woman who punched the clock, sat there, and today we would say sat on her phone, right? <laughs> right, but not, not only that, Maureen, but the interesting thing that makes it even more pronounced is that when she would, Al was in a vegetative community. Is not responding. Okay, it wasn't just she would come in and visit a sick kid. Right. She was visiting a kid who was totally, totally out of it. And what you just said, uh, every single day, she'd read to him, she'd sing to him, she'd play with him. She saw really his humanity. She saw his personhood. And the, the great thing is, and I want to give really the punchline there, is that, uh, and, I, and I didn't put it in the book, by the way. The, the, the punchline is, that after months and months, she used to bring a uh, a drum because we're from upstate New York with the Indians, and she used to talk to them about Indians. And again, it's a vegetative coma. And she would beat the drum over and over next to his ear. And when he finally woke up, one of his first words—it's not in the book, it's in the line—and he turned to me and he said, "Who was that lady with the damn drum?" No way. Which means you never, oh. never. Never know wow. that person lying in that bed, what they hear, what register. And i got to tell you, it changed me forever because when I used to go visit people in that kind of condition, I would never speak to the person. Wow. I talk to the doctor, to the nurse, the caregiver. I speak to the family. And now what I do, when I walk into that room, I disregard the family. I go right over to the bed. In respect of the condition of that person, and I say, hi, my name is Rabbi Sherman. You know, and I sing with them, and I talk with them, and I engage them in conversation, even though there's no response, because you never know what is registering. Wow, that is good, Musser, by the way. that is <laughs> It really is. I mean, it really is. Um, we have a couple of minutes left, and there are definitely two things that I want to touch on. One is is a line in the book that I think I read to, I don't know, approximately 100 different people over Pesach, um, where you say, I admit that my faith is irrational, the way falling in love with your partner is, or the way you know by feel that you have a soul. Faith is also an understanding that the punctuation of life is a question mark. I thought that was so profound, Rabbi Sherman. Right, that right. It's it just it stunned me. It was so profound. You know, and, and again, really, what you know, what it, it, it took me a long time to uh, be able to articulate really my faith. You see, uh, you know, it, it's like uh, the, the Rav in terms really of of his writings. That, that it's really the same thing that people think a person of faith is so confident in their faith. Mm. But but the punctuation of faith is out of a question mark. And as I tell people, I live in the neighborhood of history. Wow. And, that, and that's all right. I can live in that neighborhood. It's all right. You know, in Yom Kippur, we have that, that we're, we're 
says, uh, it says, uh, uh, that those things are revealed belong to us. But those things that are hidden belong to Hashem. And, uh, that, that's, that's the limitations of the human personality. If I knew everything, I'd be God myself. Okay, <laughs> That's the truth. So, but and, and I got to tell you, it's 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 incredibly difficult to be a person of faith. It's hard right. living in that neighborhood of mystery. It's uncomfortable. There's a lot of tension. There's a conflict. A lot of conflict in it. But, but it's all right. You know, uh, I, I tell the story there where I uh, a kid in a hospital and on, on his door at NYU. With one of the Bikrochovim societies, I think it was Rivka Lauper's society. They brought this kid from Yerushalayim, and, and a nurse or a friend put on his wall. He's so sick, the kid. It's Anima Amibe Munashlima. But however, the thing to me in that cardinal principle is the word Af Alti. Wow. Although he may tarry, it's not about the Mashiach. It's about Although he may tarry, I still believe. Wow. I mean, that, that's what I think faith is all about. No, I, faith is about when you've got so many doubts and you can still look yourself in the mirror of your heart and soul and say, I still believe. I need my, I mean. Wow. Well, Rabbi Sherman, with, with literally like 30 seconds left, and again, for everyone listening, the book is called The Broken and the Whole. It's available by, um, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, feel free to get multiple copies for you and your family because you will be talking about this. But I, the one question that, I, that I, cannot, I cannot let you go before we answer is how does Eyal feel about you writing this book? You know, proud. Nice. But, but, but I think also we, we, we've been able, we relate to Eyal, even though he's a 33-year-old man with a childish innocence. You protected him. We feel he has so much pain and anguish in his life, both uh, both in the soul and in his body. Let him retain his innocence about the goodness of life. Mm. And so I, I think he's proud about it, uh, that he knows that his story can help other people walk through that valley of the shadow, make it to God's promised land. Rabbi Sherman, the book is the book is really excellent. Um vote to you and and uh, thank you again for your patience with the uh, beginning portion of the interview, the technical issues that we were having. Um, but again, I, I thank you very much on behalf of all of your readers. I thank you for writing this book, and I mean that. I mean and that. Really, and I thank you really for a wonderful conversation. This oh. Thank you. You're, ter- you're terrific. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Um, my regards to Rabbi Eris Sherman, who was the one who reached out in the first place, and um, I hope I hope we will be in touch, Rabbi. I, I'm sure we will. I, I look forward to that one of these days. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Kolakavo, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network, and our second call, our second interview, is actually on the line. Rabbi Berg, are you there? Yeah, hi. How are oh, you? Oh, Rabbi Berg, you are an amazing, amazing man. Thank you very much for... Uh, your patience this morning, Rabbi Berg, as we all know, is a returning guest and almost a, you know, a co-host some days, which I really appreciate because I love having him around. He's the Eastern Director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. How was Yuntif? That was great. Thank God. <laughs> very relaxing. Very restful. Good. I am happy to hear that. I am happy to hear that. With Yom HaShoah just around the corner, um, I am sure the Simon Wiesenthal Center has a number of programs or a number of things going on or, or, or events that you can tell us about. 
Well, we have constant stream of visitors that come around this time of year um, to the museum, um, but we actually spend a lot of our time out of the museum trying to go to all the fantastic community programming. As a matter of fact, tonight I'm, I'm kicking it off. I'm going to uh, speak on a panel. The Jewish Cardinal just came out this week about uh, Cardinal Lustiger. Oh, right. Jewish Cardinal who just passed away a couple of years ago. So, um, yeah, no, there's all types of uh, great programs out there, and we're going to try and attend all of them. Um, I, I, it's, it's funny. I remember, um, you had mentioned to me a couple of months ago that you had an audience with the Pope. Uh, yes, we, uh, we, we went with our, uh, board of trustees to, uh, to meet Pope Francis, uh, in the Vatican. Um, oh. yeah, a couple months ago now. What was that like? I mean, there, there's obviously con- constant talk and we've made, uh, major progress in the relationship between the Vatican and the Jewish community, et cetera. But what was that like? Well, he's a he's an amazing man, very very humble man. You know, I remember, you know, what hit me in, in being there in the room is the tremendous, you know, kind of pomp and circumstance with like a throne and you know, very proper. And you know, he walks in, first thing he does, he pauses, turns to all of us, and apologizes for being late. You know, <laughs> I've been to many political <laughs> meetings, many meetings with very prominent individuals. I've never really had one of them just kind of pausing in that, you know, sheepish way, kind of apologize for being late. That's great. Uh, but that's that's really you know the the way he reacts to people, the way he focuses. Focuses on the poor and, and, and he does a lot of interesting things, but I think that wasn't the, the the story that stood out for me. We met with one of the cardinals, uh, American cardinal who had retired and was living uh, in Rome, and uh, we met with him. We had dinner, you know, a large dinner with him, and at the end of the night, you know, he got up to speak candidly. And the, and the Catholics in general don't speak candidly at all. They're very structured. They write out their stuff. It's approved. It's you know, so you don't really get it off the cuff as much. And he, you know, he got up to speak off the cuff, and uh, he said, he told a story. When he was in Atlanta years ago, he met with a, a, a rabbi, and they were doing interfaith dialogue. Uh, we're talking about what their religion meant to him and what they felt the religions. And you know, the, the rabbi turned to the cardinal and said, "You know, when I see you, I think to myself, can I trust you?" Yeah. And he says, "What do you mean? Of course you can trust me." He says, "I think, can I trust you?" He says, "Of course you can trust me." He says, "No, if they come to kill me, can I trust you?" <gasps> and the cardinal said that was such a powerful conversation for him that he realized this Jewish perspective of thousands of years. Right. Of who can you trust? Wow. Um, and I think that that the relations are definitely better than they've been in thousands of years um, with the church. Although you know we always need to, to grow them stronger. There, that is that is an incredible story. I'm I, I can't tell you how hot it is technically in the studio right now, but I actually have the chills. <laughs> um, it's that's that is a that is a great story. We had the opportunity over uh, Pesach to hear from Mark Weitzman. Um, also of the Simon Wiesenthal. Mark's Center. the best. Yeah, yeah, he was he was a great lecturer, and he really um, allowed so many of us in the audience that day um, when he was talking about the Vatican and talking about the relationship to understand just how far we've come that um, we are at the stage that we are with the Vatican. And I imagine that a person of your background um, and all of your life experience and having seen so many different things um, whether it was in Russia or Germany, et cetera, and uh, you were traveling so much um, when you were with NCSY. And, you know, you and I used to joke, oh, so where is, you know, where in the world is Rabbi Steve Berg? Yeah. But you've seen so much that for you to be able to be in the presence of the Pope, who is, again, as you explained, such a humble man, and see the progression of relations between the Jews and the Vatican, it must be it must be very heartening considering all the anti-Semitism that, that we face also on a daily basis. It is very heartening. And I think the one thing that we have to realize as Jews is that we need as many friends as possible. And in a lot of the trouble spots around the world that we find ourselves in, 
and a lot of the issues that pop up, uh, the fact if you have uh, or, or Christian, you know, or Muslim or, or what have you, just not Jewish, how helpful they can be uh, when those things happen, and um, and that's why this network is so important, uh, and and building these bonds are so important, and you know. The, the the pope is supposed to be going to Israel. Although I think there was a little bit of an issue when the when the uh, the state ministry went on on strike a, a month or two ago. <laughs> Even the pope and, is and, affected by the strike in, in Israel. Israel. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but you know, and, and that's that's an important visit, and he, and he sets very very important signals. And I think with this pope in particular, the fact that you know the book that he wrote, he wrote with a rabbi, and the fact right. that he has very strong ties to the Argentinian. Uh, Jewish community, which is a very large and vibrant Jewish community, um, even before he became pope, also really you know said a lot about him. I can't. I, I would be remiss, by the way, if I if I let you um, off the off the air off the phone before discussing the tragedy that t- that took place Erev Yantiv in in Overland, Kansas, where um, sure. where a clearly clearly um, unhealthy. And sick individual went into, uh, you approached a Jewish community center in Overland, Kansas, and with the intent of killing Jews right before Pesach, he, um, took the lives of three. Um, and I, if, if I'm not mistaken, none of them are actually Jewish. But that is completely and utterly besides the point, because that was not his intent. And, um, I, I can only imagine how you faced that news as soon as you heard it. Yeah, look, I, when I heard it, I mean, it was, it was absolutely terrible and, and shocking and all those things, and especially this time of year. But, you know, I turned into a broken record because what I've been saying for a very, very long time, and I'll continue saying it for a long time, is that, you know, we think that these acts are acts of lone wolves, that these guys just get up with a gun and they just go shoot people. You don't realize that these people, how much time they spend on the Internet. You know, there was one racist uh, Internet site that he posted 10,000 times. Um, and, you know, he was a well, and this, this one site, um, this one racist website, uh, they're into, you know, Aryan nation and all those things. But I, I saw some statistic that in the last, uh, five years, people that, that have commented on that site have killed a hundred people. What? And, uh, you know, so to say that, 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 that we don't know, you know, they're lone wolves, they go out, there's no way to know. Well, <laughs> in the internet, you can figure out exactly who these people are. You can go on Twitter. You can, you know, we've had this conversation before. Right. You go online right. and you know who the haters are and they say blatantly what they want to do. Right. You know, the, the Boston, we just, you know, so commemorated the one year anniversary of the Boston bombing. Correct. We know how they learned how to build a bomb. Al Qaeda taught them through a magazine called Inspire that the Boston bombers got on Twitter. There's no mystery to it. And I think that, uh, the nations of the world, certainly our, our political, uh, folks really much, much more seriously what's going on on the net. Because that's really, you know, helping these people uh, to do the things they do. It's funny you talk about the Boston, the Boston bombing, and we're obviously talking about the, the bombing that took place at the Boston Marathon last year, and all of the stories that came out of that. And it seems to me, Rabbi Berg, that when you and I discuss various scary and awful and and, and unbelievable acts of anti-Semitism and hatred um, and racism in the world that end up in tragedy. There's always at the end, because I guess this is human nature and this is where God's hand comes in, something something good, and I'm using that term loosely, please don't take it literally, but something comes out of it that, that in the end gives us strength. And, and two of the things that I'm referring to in this case, where I saw a picture of a woman who finished the marathon, um, she had lost her leg last year in the bombing, and she was fitted with um, a, a, some kind of prosthesis or whatever it was, and she completed the marathon this year. And that to me was, it was incredible, especially because I'm fetching about 
having to run a half marathon in a week and a half. And all of a sudden I see this picture of this woman. I'm like, what am I complaining about? And then there was this, cu- this picture of a couple, the husband and the wife who both lost their legs in the bombing last year. And they, in some, um, you know, con- uh, it was like a bicycle kinds of contraption made for, made for runners, so to speak. Um, and they participated and did the entire marathon as well. And they completed the Boston Marathon um, this year out of the despair of last year. So there is, there are glimmers of hope out of tragedy. Look, I think as Jews, we always look for the glimmer of hope out of tragedy. You know, in, in, when the Holocaust ended in 1945, anyone have, have realized that three years later, you know, we were celebrating the establishment of the state of Israel. So always look for that silver lining. But look, to be honest with you, you know, I look at the events in Ukraine, I look at the events in a lot of other places, very, very concerned that if there's a silver lining, I don't see what it is yet. Mm-hmm. Jews there being so yeah I think at some point down the road there does become a silver lining American kind of strengthen themselves and pick themselves back up but there are still a lot of places around the world that if uh, something really tragic uh, were to happen in a fairly quick way I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how, what, what we would be able to do about it you know you bring up the Ukraine and Uber pace off I think it was over the first days um and then it came out during Cholmoe that there was this report all over Facebook and all over social media that that Jews in one particular city in the Ukraine were asked uh, were were not asked were were um, forced to register with the city and register all of their possessions etc. And there was c- tremendous outrage until um, a report came out verifying the fact that this call or this this um, this story that had been leaked was actually a smear campaign. And that it had never t- taken place. But what what shocked me was not only the fact that Jews were in this case were obviously again being used as a pawn and being you know tormented, but the fact that we all bought into it and said yes, this could actually still happen. Yeah, look, I, I was I was at uh, I was in uh, Palm Springs for uh, for Shabbos, and on Friday, to every single door in the hotel, they delivered the USA Today with that on the front cover and. Uh, who ran the program came over to me and said, "This is what you're talking about tomorrow." You know, yeah. and, and I did speak about it. And I said exactly what you said. That it clearly was a hoax and the whole thing. But but Jews getting caught between the two sides and being used as a pawn has never ever ever turned out well for us. Number one, number right. two is, right. and this is something much more global, which I've been talking about now more and more. Is what happens if they they do start to slaughter and massacre? What happens? Mm-hmm. You know, and you have in Sudan. Let's just use that as an example. You know, there, there's been more slaughter. You know, right. the head the head of Sudan has been indicted by the International Criminal Court, and he's still in charge of his country. And so, so you know, the UN gets around and says, you know what, we really have to have a long conversation about whether we're going to condemn this and, or not. In the meantime, people get slaughtered. Right. You know, we just had the 20th anniversary of Rwanda. You know, we yeah. had some survivors here in the museum talking about what it was like to lose their whole families and rebuild and all those things. And while the, the entire world for three months watched 800,000 people get butchered. So I'm scared. You know, so, so everyone, you know, sees this paper and they get all upset and it's not what you do, et cetera. Forget the paper. You know, if, if I, real violence breaks out against the Jews, what happens? I, I don't know that, that we have a, you know, a real serious answer to that. Thank God we have the state of Israel. I know they'll try to do everything in their power. Right. But that, if you look historically, when it comes to genocide or it comes to these types of slaughters, the only thing that works is fighting back and pushing back. And, I, and, and that's why I think if people ask me what they could do, I said you better support the state of Israel with every ounce of your strength. It's very important, by the way, the fact that you just mentioned the Sudan and Rwanda, 
that people need to know that there is the hatred against the Jews is, is it's not just the only hatred that exists out there. There's unfortunately a tremendous amount of hatred and and with other um, minorities, there's more that unites us than divides us. I have a talk that I give now where I talk about how it's easier to get a jaywalking ticket than to convict someone of genocide. Wow. And and that's just the truth, the way that's it works. Crazy. Genocide is a crime against humanity that is almost unenforceable. Certainly unenforceable while it's happening, and even afterwards, almost unenforceable. And, uh, you know, look, you know, we're the Wiesenthal Center. We're still, we, we've helped to, to convict over 1,100 Nazi war criminals and, you know, worked really hard at it. But most of the time, they get lost in limbo of being extradited and, you know, no matter how many people they killed. And, and I think that that should be a real reality check to people. Well, Rabbi Steve Berg, Eastern Director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, it is always a pleasure to have you on again. I apologize for um, the truncated time that we have with you this morning, but as always, you are welcome here any, any time, and I, I thank you for your time this morning. Okay, Mary, many time. Thank you. Um, let's go to let's go to the lineup today. Uh, Nachum will be in the studio. Actually, I hear the door now. Nachum is joining me in the studio. He'll begin the live lunch at 11 o'clock. That is just in a couple of minutes. You don't want to miss that. That's from 11 to 1. And um, we have a full day of programming, as always, here. It is a Thursday at the, at the network. It's a Thursday on the stream, and we have, a, um, as always, a full day of programming. Starting at 2 p.m., we have our Throwback Thursdays, Encoring Jam, the AM from years past. That's always a lot of fun. We like having them around. Um, we like having that around, I should say. And the truth of the matter is, is I thank Mark Zomick for that because... That was his idea. And then following that, we have an encore of Michael Fragan at 6 p.m. and Charlie Bernhardt at 7 p.m. He wraps up the entire day. Join Nachum tomorrow morning from 6 on as he hosts JMNAM live here on the stream, NachumZegal.com, JMNAM.org, 740 with Malcolm. There's plenty to talk about. As Nachum said this morning on JMNAM, there is so much to recap with Malcolm. You do not want to miss that. And Naomi tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. as well. Don't miss Table for Two. My thanks to my guest, Rabbi Charles Sherman, author of The Broken and the Whole, Discovering Joy After Heartbreak. Again, you can get that at barnesandnoble.com and Amazon. And to Rabbi Steve Berg, make sure to check out the Simon Wiesenthal Center and all they have to offer. And with that, I leave you with Eighth Day's Freedom. Nachum played it numerous times while we were in Florida, and it's a great song. Speak to you after Norpak, everybody. The live lunch starts in just a few minutes. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys.
dreams of you all.